This is an ABC podcast. In August 1917, a great fire tore through the ancient port city of Salonika. The inferno destroyed the centre of the city and left around 70,000 people homeless. At the time, Salonika was the centre of operations for Allied forces in the Balkans, and the city was surrounded by troop encampments. The Great Fire of Salonika is the starting point for a new novel by the Australian writer Gal Jones. And Gal's book also features characters based on real people who were there in 1917. These include the Australian journalist and novelist Stella Miles Franklin. That's the name behind our biggest literary prizes, of course. Along with the remarkable Sydney heiress and ambulance driver Olive King. I spoke with Gal Jones about her novel, Salonica Burning, in front of an audience at Adelaide Writers Week. So, as I say, Gail, the, the book begins with this historical event, the Great Fire of Thessaloniki. What happened back in August of 1917? Uh, well, there are two catastrophes combined because Salonika, uh, as it was then, was the port city for the Eastern Front in the First World War. So everyone seems to know about the Western Front. Fewer seem to know about the Eastern Front. Uh, but it was where the Allies were uh, based, where every all the um, supplies for the war were shipped in. But it also had a refugee community from different Balkans regions um, conflicts, and it was actually in the refugee community where the fire started. It was nothing to do with the war. It was a purely haphazard, accidental occurrence. Someone was cooking, the fire spilled over, and suddenly the, the city was alight. But the city was mostly of wood, uh, wood and stone, because it was an Ottoman-era city. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Salonika. It was originally a Byzantine city. Then from 1430, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and it was the second great Ottoman city after Istanbul. So, in fact, it was where Ataturk was born. And what's remarkable about Salonika, and one of the reasons that it interests me, is that it was an extraordinary confluence of... Jewish, Muslim, and Christian cultures together in a kind of tolerant space. Uh, there's a wonderful history of Salonika, a 500-year history that traces from 1430, from when it becomes an Ottoman city, to this, this very unusual balance of, of what the author calls um, a grid of holy spaces, because there were so many mosques, synagogues, and churches all in the same city. And I found that very moving. One more thing to say about that is that it had a, Europe's biggest Jewish population. So on the outskirts of Europe, when there was the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, they went to Salonika. They were invited by the Turkish Ottomans to live in Salonika, and they took with them Ladino, which is the, the Spanish-Jewish language. And right up until the 20th century, until the Nazis arrived in 1943 and destroyed the Jewish population. They retained, they were still speaking Ladino. They were still speaking this ancient language from Jewish Spain. And so for me, this is a very fascinating place. 
but then of course it most of it burnt down it was known as the jerusalem of the balkans i yes, think given that that proportion yes. of uh the jewish population salonica or thessaloniki when which well, is it, which it tomato became, tomato yes <laughs> it became thessaloniki really with the hellenization after the war after the second world war actually and in fact when the greeks reclaimed the city from the the turks they destroyed a lot of the minarets they destroyed a lot of the signs of muslim culture and thoroughly hellenized the city and of course the jewish culture one of the things the nazis did was was destroy the jewish cemeteries so that the the gravestones were incorporated into buildings and into sidewalks so there's this terrible sense of a history that was remarkable ending in desecration um, of which i guess the fire was the beginning the fact that the city was the centre of operations for Allied forces uh, in the Balkans in the First World War meant there were these big military camps, as you say, on the outskirts of the city. What did that mean when it came to fighting the fire? Basically, the soldiers had taken all the water. There was a water shortage in the city. It had. I don't know if any of you have been to places like Istanbul and seen the old Ottoman wooden houses. They're so beautiful. They're so extraordinary, and some of them last hundreds of years. But as soon as the fire broke out, the city realised that the water had been siphoned off to the army camps. And so there, there, there are several layers of tragedy writ here. And I, th I mean, I'm not a historian and I don't know the full history, but there's something incredibly poignant about the fact that part of the failure to preserve this city and its extraordinary culture was because the water had been taken by the soldiers. After reading your novel, Gail, I went and found there's some amazing footage of uh, Salonika in the, the days after the fire. And it, it is like a bombed out city. It's mm. totally destroyed mm. by, by that fire. It's kind of quite extraordinary to imagine what it must have been like to experience it for, for the people who were there. But your novel opens not with the citizens of the city, but with the soldiers camped around the city looking down on this fire. How are they feeling? How do you describe the reaction these soldiers have to watching this ancient city engulfed in flames? Uh, well, I describe it as unethical. I describe a kind of pleasure, aesthetic pleasure, in seeing a great fire. I mean, fires from a distance do look magnificent. And I wanted, right from the beginning of the book, to set up a kind of problem about how we aestheticize disaster or what it means when, those, when the apprehension of beauty collides with the knowledge of tragedy and the way in which the aesthetic might displace a proper reckoning of the tragedy. So I did want to have that there right from the beginning and to follow through in the text with this, um, what is the status of beauty in wartime? How is it recovered? How is it preserved? How is it vouched safe against sometimes spectacular catastrophe. And, and of course, war artists had a role in, I suppose, describing and representing the war. Some of them aestheticized the war as well. What was it in your own life experience, Gail, that, that made you interested in this period of history? Uh, well, up until about three weeks ago, I thought that this novel had come from research. And then I spoke to my brother on the phone and he said, no, no, it's from your childhood. <laughs> uh, and I was, it, to me now, it seems bleeding obvious. But from the ages of seven to ten, 
um, I lived with my family in a decommissioned quarantine station uh, eight kilometers from the Kimberley town of Broome. So we lived in the hospital of the decommissioned quarantine station. There were three... We're giving, like, this is live sound effects right. of your childhood Indeed, experience. Yes. The pre it's the ghosts of the hospital. That's right. <laughs> so there were three buildings. There was a doctor's house, a hospital, and much further away, what had been nurses' quarters. This was built in 1919. So in 1919 was the year when all of the soldiers were being shipped back to Australia. Soldiers who were wounded or mutilated or some still ill. And what I was told as a child, although I knew nothing about war except from war comics, what I was told was that our house had been a place where soldiers with typhoid, cholera and malaria were sent to die or to recover and then be allowed to return to the south, to their homes. So I had this odd, I mean, from these blurry and imprecise details, I had the idea that perhaps soldiers had died in my bedroom, that there had been you know, men thrashing in fever and calling out in the night uh, in the place that was now my home. And I think that that was a kind of haunting. And I don't mean in any lurid way. I don't mean that there were ghosts or apparitions or some comic book woohoo. Um, what I mean is that I had, I think, an intuition of a certain kind of suffering that was soldiers away from home and wanting to be somewhere else. And I think that for all of us, not just for writers, but for all of us, we have these shreds of childhood experience that return to us as adults, that have some symbolic density to them, that sort of wraith-like enter our adult experience and are reconfigured or re-encountered or reconstituted as memory or as art or, I mean, it took me a long time to realize that this might be a source of this novel, that I'd well, been in a your, space. took your brother it took my it brother to, to point it out. <laughs> Why were so, your family living in this? Uh, my father was working for the, um, the DCA, the airline. He was an electrician who put lights on in the broom runway strip. That was his job. And this was the accommodation that was And the available. accommodation was in this old quarantine station, eight kilometres from Broome, which felt a long way because it was just a sort of road through the bush. And it was a very, so it was an isolated, windy, slightly spooky space in any place, in any case, because the, the configuration of the house was such that the wind blew straight through it. The house was open at both ends because it was, had been a hospital. It had to be accessible uh, in a, the configuration of the rooms was very odd. So I used to think of it like a flute with w wind blowing through it. It's noisy, windy, spooky place. And did you go so, to school there, Gail, or you travel into Broome? I went to school in Broome. There was no school at the quarantine station. There was only one primary school in Broome. Well, there were two. There was a Catholic school and a government school. I went to the government and school. And were there other children at this quarantine station? My brothers were with me. Uh, and my brothers had lots of war comics. And I knew, of course, that Brim had been bombed during the war. So, you know, the ways in which children start to have a sense of their location, their own history, their own family, what has gone before them. For me, that was very overdetermined by this place. Because in the sandhills where we played, we would find bullet casings. 
we would find, you know, places where there had been machine guns set up. When the tide went out, you could walk out and see a Japanese plane in the bay, a shot-down plane. That was very, very exciting to, to sort of see the war, war plane. In your novel, the first character that we meet is Olive. What was she doing during this fire? What, what's her role in, in the fire at Salonika? So this is a novel based on four historical figures who were all in or about Salonika, 1916 to 1917. And the one that I began with first was Olive King, who was an ambulance driver, and her, she was the daughter of a widower. He had two daughters who was wealthy enough, he'd made his money on the Ballarat goldfields, moved to Sydney, was a gold trader. He was wealthy enough to buy her her own ambulance. <laughs> um, because she wanted to join the war effort, he was stuck in Australia. She was in London when the war broke out. And she was an adventurous. She was a mountain climber. She was a very independent-minded woman. She had no medical experience, but she could drive which, uh, again, not many women in 1913 could drive. It wasn't something... Kind of remarkable. Instead of asking her wealthy father to buy her a pony or a ball gown, she asked for an ambulance. Indeed, yes. And he was very happy to support the war effort and continued to donate money to that part of the world, funding orphanages, funding food sent from Australia to this region of Greece and Macedonia all through the war. And she just took herself off and volunteered with the, with the Allied Army? As so a... first she volunteered in France, so she was with the Red Cross in France, then she went to Salonika, and she was with an outfit called the Scottish Women's Hospital. And what do you know about them, okay, the Scottish so Women's Hospital? The suffragettes, I mean, I have to talk about the suffragettes to talk about the Scottish Women's Hospital. There were 14 field hospitals, that is to say hospitals made of tents, all across Europe, during the First World War. And these were run by Scottish suffragettes. They were entirely staffed by women. There were no men employed at the Scottish Women's Hospital. And a lot of them were volunteers. And they raised money throughout the Commonwealth. So Australia, a lot of Australian nurses and contributors to the Scottish Women's Hospital. Australia, South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, all contributed. They set up hospitals because the British Army wouldn't have them. So the suffragettes in London believed in 1913, and it, I mean, it was the high point of activism in 1913. They believed when the war broke out that it would only last a few months and that if they offered medical, their medical services, because a lot of women medicos were suffragettes, that they would have the vote by 1915. And of course, we know that the war lasted four years. The British Army said, no, we don't employ women. So that's when they set up their own hospitals. And are there records? I mean, I mean, how did you go about finding out the details of what these hospitals would have been like? So there are vast records on the internet. Um, like a lot of World War I military records, they're, they're so detailed, they're sort of astonishing. But I was already, already interested in suffragettes you know that women got the vote um, in 1894 here. They first voted in 1896. I mean, the women in, in Britain, um, they had some, some gains in 1918 at the end of the war, but they didn't get the vote till 1928. So, you know, in Australia, all Australian women got the vote at Federation in 1901. But in, 
in the UK, uh, if you've seen the movie Suffragette, you will know that there was a lot of violence against women, mostly torture in prisons with, with forced feeding. And the women, the suffragettes, were resorting to violent militarism themselves. So the suffragettes invented the letter bomb. There was a letter bomb in London in 1913 that killed five people, including the suffragette carrying it. You know, that this was a, a very tormented, difficult, violent time. And they thought that by offering their services as medicos and actually organizing themselves as medicos, that they would reconstruct to some extent their, their um, reputation and contribute to the war effort. What kind of medical care were, were they able to offer in, in the Balkans in the First World War? From what I've learned, uh, I mean, they employed uh, surgeons, whichever were trained, whichever women were trained, they seem to have found them. Uh, it was the beginnings of anesthesiology, so there were anesthetists, also women, orderlies, and many, many nurses, great armies of nurses. And I think that, I, I mean, I think of what happened just before the war. Many of you will know of the woman who threw herself in front of the king's horse at the Epsom Derby, the suffragette who in 1913 had tried to place a banner, a suffragette banner, over the king's horse. She was trampled to death at the age of 41. And people said, well, this was a suicide. She was deranged. But this was a woman who'd, who'd been force-fed in jail 49 times. So that these women, some of these women were very used to the suffering body. They were used to um, medicalized uh, and medical knowledge. They armed themselves with medical knowledge as part of the suffragette struggle. Uh, and they, they turned up uh, in vast numbers, lots of Australian women. The, the hospital in Salonika was run by a woman from Queensland. The surgeon in your book, Grace, is based on a, a real Englishwoman, Grace Powthorpe. Tell me about her and, and what had happened in her life to let her train as a surgeon in the first place in the early 1910s. Right. So, so Grace was Grace had nine siblings, all, all male, so she was the only girl among ten children um, in a family of Plymouth Brethren. So they were, she was born in Sussex, um, but to a very, very strict doctrinaire religious family. And she was, she had a terrible relationship with her mother. Her mother kept telling her she should have been strangled at birth. She only wanted sons. And in fact, Grace wrote a, a very short memoir called Strangled at Birth, uh, it was a very dysfunctional, strange family, but she found solidarity with her brothers. Um, she broke away and went, of all places, to Newcastle because they accepted her to train as a doctor, and she became a surgeon. And so she was a remarkable woman, born in 1883. By the time the war came, she was already a practised surgeon. And she, like Olive, was at the Western Front before coming to yes. Salonika? Yes, so she also began with the French Red Cross before she discovered that she could work with the suffragettes at their hospitals. She was very interested in psychoanalysis. She was very well educated and she read and translated Freud. After the war, she became a Freudian psychoanalyst and she was actually analysed by Ernest Jones, who is Freud's biographer, of course. 
she also became a surrealist artist. And if you were to Google Grace Palethorpe images, you would see mind-blowing images of very brightly colored images of bodies, babies, breasts, orifices, umbilical cords, tentacles. Well, I think if you've got nine brothers and your mother says you should have been strangled at birth, there's a lot to work with there's a in lot analysis. To work with. <laughs> I, th I think she was, um, uh, she was a deeply troubled woman, but she was so uh, self-possessed and so determined to make her own life, to be self-fashioning. And, and the way out of that was to, to become a surgeon. And the idea of what it would have been like to work as a surgeon in that kind of setting, which you describe very vividly in terms of the amputations that have to be performed, the, the lack of proper conditions, having just to try to provide brandy or other kinds of basic pain relief for, mm. for the men that she was operating on would have taken a very particular kind of character. I think so. I mean, I, I'm in, in such admiration for these women who, I mean, if, if you think about their situation, they are nursing, you know, men come in every day with shrapnel wounds and with burn wounds and, and then they have to fix them up so they can go back to the front. So there's this very strange paradox, in a sense, the psychopathology of war, that there are all of these women away from the front, although some of them go to the front, as Olive did with her ambulance. She knew exactly what trench warfare was like. Uh, Grace had also seen the front. She too knew what trench warfare was like. And they're, they're laboring to save the lives of men who sometimes don't want to be saved. Sometimes they would rather die than live a mutilated life or than be seen to have failed somehow to be a hero. And I think the psychic torment of that must have been extraordinary. I, I really had to think about that quite a bit, what it meant to be caring in that situation where it's just, it goes on for four years. 20 million people killed, 21 million wounded in the First World War. The city's full of damaged bodies. And on top of that, they had malaria to contend with. So, <laughs> The character that... Australians, I guess, especially Australians at a writers' festival, are most likely to be familiar with is Stella, who's based on Stella Miles Franklin. What was Stella Miles Franklin doing in Salonica? She's not a nurse nor a doctor. That's right. Um, well, I, I, I was originally just going to write about Olive, and then I thought I'll just see who else was in Salonica, and I discovered Stella Miles Franklin, and I thought, gosh like you, I thought, what was she doing there? So, as we know, Stella Miles Franklin was 16 when she wrote My Brilliant Career. She was a feisty, um, determined young woman who'd already identified as a novelist at the age of 16. Before arriving in London and joining the Scottish Women's Hospital, she'd been in Chicago for nine years. She'd been working with a Melbourne woman called Alice Henry, organizing unions. So she was working as a union organizer and, and a feminist in Chicago. What happened, however, was that her only sibling, her sister, Linda, died back in Australia. And Miles Franklin had a, a kind of nervous breakdown where she couldn't work anymore. So she went off to London and arrived um, not long before the outbreak of the First World War. 
She was working cutting up sandwiches in an anarchist cafe in the centre of London. <laughs> she could cut them all different angles, maybe. She could, <laughs> and she pretended she was a cook. She couldn't cook to save her life. <laughs> but she wanted to be part of the action. I mean, she wanted adventure. She keeps saying this in her diaries, I want adventure. So she applied, she got someone at the anarchist cafe to recommend her as a cook to the Scottish Women's Hospital. She was, she really wanted to be where she thought the real action was, like Belgium or France in the Western Front. Ends up a bit disappointed at first that she sent to this outpost. And of course can't cook. <laughs> so so she, she becomes more of an orderly. Uh, but, but the account of her time there is rather depressing because she caught malaria all for historical figures that my novel's based on all caught malaria. They all had to be repatriated eventually. She caught malaria and then she was given an injection in the buttock with a huge needle that penetrated her sciatic nerve and she went lame. So she had, she had malaria, but she was also lame. And she, she had a terrible time really in Salonika. She was writing journalism to be published back in Australia. That's right. And also yeah. writing a diary, an account of her experiences. How do they tally these, these two different forms of writing? Not well, Sarah. So her journalism was all rah-rah empire. She really, she had so internalised the idea that the British are the master race and she called herself an outlander. You know, she wanted to be British as she desperately wanted to be accepted by the, um, by the British suffragettes and the Scottish and Welsh suffragettes. She was insecure. She hadn't written for a long time. You know, she was in her 30s when she was a cook in Salonika and she wrote My Brilliant Career when she was 16. So there was a certain kind of dramatised insecurity. The things she was writing were all about the brave soldiers, how handsome they were, their amazing moustaches. She had an obsession with especially Serbian moustaches. She goes on and on about it in her diaries. It's a little bit kooky to my taste. Um, and their muscles. She goes on about the muscles of the soldiers and, and puts it down to eugenics. So she's a woman of her time. She's a feminist, but she's also an imperialist and nationalist. She believes in the white Australia policy. You know, she was. She's not a particularly person. sympathetic character in that she's she's prickly, she's vain. You know, she's not volunteering really out of a desire to help other people, but for her own career or her yeah. own interest in being where the action is, so she can write about it. But I don't know that that made her very human to me, rather than a sort of saint-like figure. No, me me too, Sarah. I mean, I I have a I have a soft spot for her. I mean, her. Ideologically, she was very confused, but she, she, she wanted a big life. She had been destroyed by the grief for her sister. She wanted to feel that she was participating in one of the great dramas of the early 20th century. And there's something very poignant about the fact that she's struggling with malaria and that she's been made lame by her injection and kind of dragging herself around the, the Scottish Women's Hospital feeling pathetic and useless. And I find that actually very moving. So what I wanted was complexity. I didn't want heroines. 
This is a novel that deconstructs the idea of heroism. I wanted, I wanted to give voice to med the medicos, the feminine voice, the voice of the silenced, of the wounded, um, of the voiceless, and, and not that public voice that she proclaimed confidently, but what really happened to her. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. These three women, Stella, Grace and Olive, I mean, they're all living an unusual life in that they're independent, they're untethered, they're acting in careers which were very unusual for them at that time. Was that something as well that you were wanting to explore, Gail, of, of women living these non-conventional lives? Mm. Many Australians went overseas for the first time during the Great War and for many of them it was utterly transformative. And part of it was being away from home, being in places where English was not the main language, meeting cultural otherness and being challenged by the trauma of war. And when I say I'm interested in the psychopathology, uh, one of the things that always strikes me about the war is its terrible, terrible waste. And we know since Grace was a Freudian, we know Freud before World War I was talking about the libido. He was talking about, he was talking about eros, about the, the desire to have sex, to be in life, to affirm life. After the war, Freud is treating patients of shell shock. He's treating men who are mutilated. He's treating men who are traumatized. And he develops the idea of the death drive, of the thanatos, that perhaps there's something destructive that, that we must account for, and that psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, philosophy, that we should take very seriously. What does it mean that we undermine our own drive to life? And what does it mean that war, war coerces and manipulates desire, makes one think that there's something noble in killing other people? The women in the story all have their own ways of trying to handle survive the intensity of the suffering that they're exposed to through being in this this field hospital there's an Australian matron who urges them all to just hold tight keep it together but you take us inside the the minds of the three women Grace you mentioned has this interest in Freud and psychoanalysis but what's Olive's technique for keeping herself calm when when the memories or the visions are too painful mm. so the the real Olive King um, was sent to Dresden as a teenager, like a finishing school. Uh, you know, she was of the upper class in Sydney where girls were still sent off to Europe and she and her sister were sent off in the care of a maiden aunt uh, to learn German and to study literature. And so, so Olive struggled a bit with German, but, but that too, I think, must have transformed her. She had a longing to go to Dresden, which, as we know, was firebombed and destroyed in the Second World War, but held fast to this idea of a different kind of model of 
the city, a different kind of culture, different kind of language. And she practices her German silently. This is like a guilty pleasure to practice German when you're fighting the Germans. But it gives her good mental occupation, it those does. German verbs. Yes. Another coping mechanism that they all share is smoking, cigarettes. Is that something that th those women did? Do you yes, know? Yes, endlessly. So the, the opening to my novel is by midnight, all was blaze and disintegration. I didn't use the verbs. I didn't say everything was blazing and disintegrating because I wanted there to be blaze, which is the spectacle, the big vision, the war, and disintegration, which is the particulate it's ash, it's smoke, it's things falling apart. It's the world unmade. And one of the things I noticed about the war is how everybody talks about smoking all the time. It was one of the forms of comfort. And the idea of taking ash into your body seemed to me um, a kind of metaphoric way that I could think through the contamination of the war for these women, who I think must have also been very psychologically damaged by their experience. And it's yeah. something interesting that a cigarette kind of buys someone a moment of time too, doesn't it? It's like I'm allowed to sit and just think or process something as long as I look like I'm doing something, even if in this case it's having a cigarette. It's like a, a ticket of leave, if only for a few minutes. Uh, although, as we've been describing, that Grace is posted there to perform surgeries on these terrible war wounds, that's not actually the greatest medical threat. It's not fighting. What was the, what were most casualties coming from in this region of the war? Mm. Well, most were from malaria. So it's a t terribly malarial part of the world. This was a time in which uh, so many soldiers were dying from disease and more soldiers were dying in Salonika from malaria than from war wounds at one stage. And so that the nurses had to learn very quickly about how to administer deep injections, um, but also quinine. Everyone was having quinine to protect themselves. And all around the world, medicos were experimenting sometimes with large populations, so captive populations like indentured laborers on the Malaysian rubber plantations were being injected with quinine against their will and without their permission in order to try to hurry up knowledge about malaria to save the troops in Europe. It's a very strange medical history that I didn't know much about and until it, I began. And it continues being a decisive factor in battles in the Second World War in our own region, malaria, until it's really known how to be handled. It's yes. an ongoing issue. Yes. Yeah. One thing that enlivens the tedium and deprivation of this camp life is the arrival of a lorry full of rabbits. Is that a, a, a true story or is that your own dark imagination, uh, Gal Jones? It's, it's a true story. So one character we haven't talked about is Stanley. It's true, I forgot poor Stanley Spencer. You forgot Stanley, so I'm, I'm reminding you that there's a man who's also a medical orderly, a man called Stanley Spencer who became one of the great artists of the 20th century in Britain. Some of you will know his work. And there, there is a, a, a men's camp, the Royal Berkshires were quite close. Uh, so there's a men's camp that was very close to the women's hospital. And what I discovered was that there was this artist who I've been interested in, in for a long time, also there at Salonika. And he'd, he'd been at the front for two and a half years. So he was a bit worn down 
but he had his paint he had his sketchbooks with him and he kept alive with his sketchbooks the rabbits uh there were shipments of rabbits from australia to um the eastern front so there was a lot of starvation and problems with water supplies and there was a campaign in australia called money for bunnies so if you um could catch some rabbits you were given you know sixpence um for a big rabbit and threepence for a little rabbit and and huge numbers were sent to uh the eastern front what kind of state would the rabbits have been in I, by the time they arrived i don't really arrived? know i've i've looked on trove i've read a few things about this and i really need a historian to help me out here we did once have someone on conversations i believe from south australia who talked about tinned rabbit being oh a, yes a, no there was a lot of tinned meat but yeah. these were frozen rabbits so so refrigeration happened about this time and they put frozen rabbits on boats and shipped them to the eastern front and to different war zones actually so apart from bully beef and tinned rabbit you could also have these kind of frozen little rabbit. corpses of frozen rabbits and and one of the things i wanted to do was to have the arrival of a truck full of frozen rabbits to to really i i didn't want a novel that sounded like history i'm not a historian i wanted a novel that took the very strange aberrant even um and sometimes charming details of the life at, at the um Scottish Women's Hospital and just behind the front and think about them novelistically and novelistically it was a bit it was too good to ignore <laughs> the idea of a, a truck full of rabbits already sort of turning a bit green at the edges and getting a bit you know sodden and smelly and how exciting that was for to have actual meat instead of something out of a tin Uh, and the other thing that arrived on mass was socks so australian women at the home front knitted 1,300,000 socks to be sent right across the the fronts of the first world war because socks were something that men desperately needed and they were a comfort so the cigarettes and socks and meat these were the three sort of comfort objects for these men as i was reading the novel gal you know this very vivid depiction of a destroyed city is when i was watching images on television of the terrible earthquakes in turkey and syria and of course the devastation in the ukraine did it feel as you were writing it that these parallels just kept reappearing in in our life now uh unfortunately yes um i mean this novel was written 2 years ago now so before the ukrainian war but uh, it does seem to me that war is perpetual i don't make an equivalence between all wars so i'm not talking about the war in ukraine the great war was a terrible war because it it sacrificed so many men so unnecessarily so i th- i have a particular horror of the great war and that is the best documented the archives on the internet of the great war are absolutely extraordinary and if you have any relative who was at the great war there'll be something there and again that the energy of saving those details alongside adjacent to the sheer energy of destruction and well there's another thousand men gone you know i'm it's it's very shocking to contemplate and 
alas, war is still with us. It seems perpetual. I think there's that other inevitable tragedy when you're reading or or watching anything to do with the First World War is that awareness that we have from this point in history that there's this shadow of the Second World War looming as well, that although it is the Great War, it won't be the end of war. And that mm. you've already mentioned Dresden, which comes up in the story as this eternal city that we know now is obliterated during yeah. the Second World War. And it was not the war to end all wars, which is how it was described. And the other thing is that there were innovations in the First World War. Wars uh, really do spur on technology, which is one of the horrible paradoxes of the war machinery. But this was the first war that was really what the Germans call the Luftkrieg, the air war. And they had, apart from fighter planes, they had zeppelins. And very early in the war, there were zeppelin attacks on London. And I, I really wanted to write about that. I wanted to have Olive on leave from the front. So she's 1915. She witnesses a, um, an, an attack, a very famous Zeppelin attack. Five Zeppelins came in in 1915 over London and destroyed the theatre district around Charing Cross. So the theatre district, the Lyceum Theatre, if you know London, the Lyceum Theatre was destroyed. And these Zeppelins were like magical apparitions. They were these silver, beautiful, sort of floating things that, that arrived in a sort of otherworldly context. Were they fairly silent? They went da-dum, 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 da-dum. And we know about that from Catherine Mansfield. So the, Catherine Mansfield gave a very precise description of the sound of Zeppelin's that she heard in Paris when there was a Zeppelin attack on Paris. And that's what I've picked up on. I've used her description. But Catherine Mansfield said it was like a pulse in the sky, like, like something breathing or living coming towards you, but floating above. And I think she used the... Her metaphor is like a great silver fish floating above you, you know, that, that sort of cigar shape of the Zeppelin. So there was a great deal of psychic and imaginative energy trying to assimilate what a Zeppelin was. Some of it was quite peculiar. There was a mythology that Zeppelins were driven by women, that only women, men were in planes, but women were in the Zeppelins, and it was women who were killing civilians. The men were killing other soldiers, but women were killing the civilians of the great cities of the UK. So these, the, this is the kind of thing that, as a novelist, interests me. The idea that the Zeppelins were, were piloted by women is extraordinary. Is there any historical basis to that, or is that, was that just urban myth that they were...? It was urban myth, and, oh. and I can't help thinking that it was a kind of sexist myth that somehow the idea that civilians were being targeted, that they came in these floaty, sort of pretty shapes, and that it had to be women behind it. It wasn't. It wasn't real warfare. It was, it was something a bit sneaky, underhanded, feminised. It was feminised in the same way that elements of the war were eroticised. There's a parallel between the excitement, the, the foul enjoyment, as you put it, that the soldiers feel when they're watching this great fire in Salonika with the kind of excitement that Olive and her sister and brother-in-law feel when they see this Zeppelin in London, they, they chase it in a taxi, you know. You, that's something it seems that you keep wrestling with is 
the adrenaline that humans feel when we're up mm. close to some catastrophic event, the, the pull towards it, you know, whether it's a car crash we see or whether it's mm. a, a zeppelin mm. in the sky or a fire in a city, and that you feel to a degree because this is what you want to write about, mm. but you also keep pulling yourself back. How, how do you think mm. through that? Uh, I mean, that, that example of, of getting in a taxi and following a zeppelin and watching the bombs fall of, in front of you, I, I got that from a letter from Virginia Woolf to one of her aristocratic friends. So one of her friends had, had, had done exactly that, had hired a taxi to follow the zeppelin on its bombing raid. And that really gave me pause. I thought, what, what is going on there? And as you say, it is like the allure of the accident, the allure of other people's suffering but again, spectacularized at a distance. Not, it's not what, what, what Olive sees is a burning bus, and, but she doesn't see the bodies in the bus. And then she goes back to her sister's house. She's on leave visiting her sister and she's able to sleep. She's a, prob she's a problem sleeper. She's able to sleep and she says, the difference was that I didn't see any bodies. She comes back from that experience despising herself because she feels safe and because she knew she was excited. And that's the, that's the kind of, again, the kind of psychological detail that, that might interest a novelist more than a historian. How, how does one? How do we get our heads around this? Well, you've yes, said that a few times. I'm not a historian. I'm, I'm a novelist. What's the different truth that a novelist brings to history that's different and differently valid than what a historian would bring? I think it's an inner truth in the sense that, um, that we, we all know the numbers, the dates, you know, we know the kind of literal version of the war. The psychological truth of the war, the fact that there were people there from country Victoria who were thinking about rabbits, thinking about their lost family, thinking... I wanted to have an interiorized and psychological novel. There are lots of novels about soldiers. There are lots of novels, in fact, about nurses. I wanted a novel about memory, tragedy, that what it felt like to have to amputate the legs of someone that you knew wouldn't survive. What being part of that system, that system of the mass rather than the irreducible specificity of each human being, what it is to be caught up in a system that values the mass rather than the individual. So I hope that was my sort of task for myself. I tried. It's, it was a big, big Well, I task. feel that it, it gives, um, it chimes with me about how we actually experience our lives. You know, we're annoyed because we've got a blister or we want a cigarette or we're thinking about a, a loved one who's somewhere else, we're writing them a letter. Yes, there are these bigger movements of geopolitical forces happening around us, but a novelist gets inside the body and the psyche in a way that it's hard for history to do. I hope so. Um, I, that's what I'm aiming for. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that sounds immodest, but I'm aiming for a, another kind of truth, which is the, the invisible truth. I mean, Stanley, Stanley's job is to look after the mules in the war, and this is considered as a, a kind of degraded job. He's not a real soldier. He's not even a real medico. He's looking after animals, and I wanted to give honour to that to give honour to their voiceless animal as well as to 
this man who was, you know, about five foot tall, a bit weedy, insecure, but went on to be one of the great 20th century artists. That's what Stanley went on to do. You've mentioned that Grace goes on to become a pioneering psychotherapist and surrealist painter. Stella, we know, leaves her legacy in terms of prizes for fiction, for writing here in Australia. What about Olive, the ambulance driver? What happened to um, her? Well, Olive joins the Serbian army, so she becomes a fighter. And she, in, in Serbia, she's actually like a war heroine. She's on stamps and people know her name. And, and also her father donated a lot of money to orphanages in that part of the world. So there are orphanages named after her. And, and there's just a, a, a strange sense of, we're all of us caught up in our current moment of history. None of us know the destination of our own labors. And I find it very moving that, that these four people did have afterlives, but I think all of them were shattered actually by that war as were so many men. And what about you, Gail? Has this time and place in history left its mark on you? Is it something you'll return to or, or go to in uh, terms well, of Thessaloniki? Well, I've Salonika? been invited to Thessaloniki, which is what it's now called this year, so I'll probably go this year to talk about the book and to meet Thessalonicans. Um, and been, I've been interviewed by a couple of Greek papers. So I, there's a sort of interest in the fact that an Australian would write about this part. Everybody, I mean, there's a lot of work about Gallipoli, a lot of work set on the Western Front, much less work, I think, set on the Eastern Front. And that might take account of the fact that there's a great fire, that, that two catastrophes come together in one space, which really is... The dimensions of that, the dimensions of the large and the small, the amplitude, the space that we must cognitively encounter in that from the great to the granular, to the smoke, to the ash, that was what I was trying to think about. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that insight into the making of this book, Gail. Please join me in thanking Gail Jones. You've been listening to a conversation with Gal Jones recorded at last week's Adelaide Writers Week and we were discussing her new novel, Salonica Burning. We've had a bunch of guests from the Adelaide Writers Week on conversations over the last few weeks and a few more to come, so take a look at our website or podcast feed for the full list of those. A big thank you to all the excellent ABC audio engineers who made those recordings possible, sometimes in slightly trying circumstances. And thanks, as always, to the conversations team behind the scenes. Executive producer Carmel Rooney and producers this week, Maggie Morris and Tamar Creswick. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.